Amen. Genesis chapter 15 begins by saying, After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, for I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. It begins by saying, After these things. Well, after what things? In the previous chapter, the last segment of our Bible study, we saw this man Abram drawn into a major regional conflict that was going on in his area at this time. There were four kings of Mesopotamia, the Babylonian Persia area, a very strong military conglomeration that had launched a campaign to expand their territory and in the process of it, they had invaded the southern portion of what would become the Promised Land, or Abraham's land, as it was promised to and given by God. And in their conquering, they overthrew the five cities of the plain. And the consequence is that Abram's nephew, Lot, who had been traveling with him during the first part of his journey, was taken captive by those four kings and was now a prisoner of war taken up into the region of Syria. And Abram, hearing word, report of this battle and this event, he arms 318 of his own servants, and he chases after these four kings, and he falls upon them by night. And by the hand and provision of God, he launches a, a, a guerrilla war, really, against these guys, and he defeats them. And he rescues Lot and the citizens of Sodom. And he carries away all of the spoils of the entire military campaign up to that time. And then he makes the long journey home with Lot. And he comes to the Vale of Shava, which is Kiriathayim, on the uh, eastern side of the Dead Sea, about halfway down, if you can kind of picture that in your mind. And as he comes to this Valley of Shava, he's met by two kings. First, the king of Sodom, this Satan-like character who represents the god of this age, lowercase g, Satan, the prince of this world. And he also meets the king of Salem, this man Melchizedek, whom we saw is at least a picture of Jesus Christ, but probably was an appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, as we saw and looked at in the text and in our study last week. And he brought bread and wine to Abram, and he refreshed him and blessed him in the name of the Lord, being a king of righteousness and a king of peace, his name by interpretation. And Abraham gave him a tenth or a tithe of all that he had taken as the spoils of war. And then the king of Sodom gave a proposition to Abram. He said, hey, listen, you can keep all the war spoils, everything that was ours previously, but please see to it that all of the citizens come back with me. I want the souls, you keep the stuff. And Abraham says, I'm not touching anything that comes from this battle. It was the Lord's. And he says, certainly I don't want any of the stuff, lest you say that Abram is rich because he has the spoils of Sodom in that battle. And so Abram lets go of it all. He says, these are all free to choose who they want to serve. And I don't want anything that was taken in this battle. You can have it. And he lets it go, and he gives it back to the king of Sodom. Well, Lot, Abram's nephew, decides to stay in Sodom, not to return with Abram. 
And Abram begins now the long walk home from Kiriathaim back to Hebron, which is no small journey. He has to go around the entire Dead Sea on foot and then westward a certain ways uh, to get back home to Hebron. And as Abraham is going, he hits sort of a lull. He comes to kind of a low point in his own experience. And I find that that's not an uncommon thing. That after a great victory... After seeing an amazing thing happen in our lives, it's not infrequent for us to go through kind of a depression or to be vulnerable to some form of an attack. We see it throughout the scriptures. You recall the great man Elijah, the man of faith. He called down fire from heaven and God answered his prayer. He single-handedly killed 450 pagan false prophets of Baal. He stuck it to Jezebel's kingdom. He put her in her place. It was an amazing victory. He outran the chariots of Ahab. It was a spiritual explosion in his life. And yet we see that just the next day, he received a threatening letter from the queen that said, I'm going to kill you. And he wigged out. And he ran 350 miles to Mount Sinai and said, God, I've had enough. Take me home. I don't want to live anymore. And you say, what happened? Sometimes after a great victory, there can be a great depression or a great law. We see even in the life of Jesus, after the Spirit came upon him in the form of a dove, and the voice of the Father spoke from heaven saying, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And the people saw it. His ministry was launched. The purpose for which he came was now coming to bear. But right after it, it says that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. A great spiritual high followed by a lull. And we see it happening now in the life of this man, Abram. He's walking home and he's no doubt thinking, I just took 318 men and I sucker punched Babylon. What am I, crazy? I did it for a nephew who's so ungrateful that not only did he not thank me, but he went right back into the lifestyle that got him into that mess in the first place. I let go of all of the spoils of war. I've got nothing to show for all of my labor and all of my efforts. What in the world am I doing? I have ticked off the king of Egypt. I offended the king of Sodom. And then I punched Babylon in the face. I have angered the entire world. They're all going to squash me. They're going to launch a unified campaign and they're going to come in and they're going to kill me. I'm through. I can't believe what I just did. Anybody ever feel like that? Can you relate to Abram? When you think about the things that happened over the past months or years and you think, I've just messed everything up. I've offended every person in my life. I'm done. It's over. I'm through. That's what Abraham is thinking at this time. He, He just thinks, I have... I've just done it. I've lost it. I'm, I, I'm, I'm finished. We know that Abram is afraid at this time because of what God says to him when he comes. He says to Abram, fear not. Now, God doesn't come to you and tell you not to fear unless you're afraid. and You have something to be afraid of. And Abram thinks that I have really done it. In a minute, he's going to say, Lord, I go. I am going. In other words, he thinks his life is over, that things have now passed for him, and thus God now has to come to him. And so the context of these things that are happening in chapter 15 is that Abram has just returned from battle. 
He's depressed and afraid. And God comes to him in this time and gives to him a much-needed, life-changing interaction with himself. And that's what happens in this chapter. It's after these things, and it tells us that the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now, this is the first time that we see these things put together like this in the Bible, that the word of the Lord came to someone and that it came in a vision. This is a brand new thing for the Bible. Now, thus far, we've seen God spoke to Abram and we've seen that the Lord appeared to Abram. Those things have happened. But here it says that the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And that interests me because what that does is it takes two entirely different senses and it combines them for the purpose of revelation. The word of the Lord came, we typically associate that with hearing, don't we? The word of the Lord. But it came in a vision, and a vision has to do with seeing. And so what the Bible is telling us here is that Abraham had a spiritual interaction with God, and it was through the vision of this interaction that a message was now conveyed. So God does something here in Abram's life, and through it, he gives a word or a message or a series of messages to Abram in it. It's a very interesting thing, isn't it? When he says that the word of the Lord came to him in a vision, the vision is a definite thing. It's literally in the vision. And so what that means is that the events that take place now in chapter 15 are the vision, the interaction, the revelation that then brings to Abram the message that's conveyed throughout this chapter. So the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now this raises a very interesting question. How does God communicate with his people? We know and we say all the time that this is a relationship and not a religion, right? That we have accepted Christ and we've come into a relationship with the living God. And the foundation of every relationship is communication between the two parties, right? You can't have relationship if you don't relate. And thus there has to be a speaking and a hearing by both parties. Jesus would say that my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So Jesus said if we belong to him, the part of that is that we're going to hear his voice, that he's going to speak to us. And so how does God speak? How does he communicate with his people? I remember as a new believer, I couldn't get enough of the Bible. I loved sermons. I loved messages. I loved church and Bible study. Anytime, even on the radio, I just couldn't get enough. And I remember on one particular occasion, I was going to be making a trip. And I thought I'd grab some cassette tapes from the church tape library. It was back in the days of cassettes. And so I was scanning through titles and just looking for things that would pique my interest. And there was a particular title of a tape about three quarters of the way down one of the rows. And the title of the message was simply, Hearing God's Voice. And I thought, man, that sounds so interesting to me. I want to know how to hear God's voice. And so I grabbed that tape, and that was the one that I wanted to listen to the most. And sadly, I was disappointed. I don't even remember what the substance of the message was. I just know that I came away from hearing it thinking, man, I really thought I was hoping I would learn how to hear God's voice and I'm no better off on the other side of hearing that message than I was before it. And that could be an interesting, puzzling thing for us, isn't it? How do we hear God's voice? How does he communicate with his people? I was having a conversation with one of my kids just about two days ago. 
And this, I'm going to give it away. I know I'm trying not to, but I'm, I know I'm going to say the, the wrong or whatever. Anyways, this child said to me, Dad, I don't think God is speaking to me. Or I'm not hearing the Lord. He's not talking to me. And I said, okay, well, what do you mean? Well, I'm reading my Bible, and I'm doing everything I'm supposed to be doing, but it seems like I'm getting nothing out of it. I read my chapter, or I read my section, or whatever it is for the day, and it just goes in one eye, and it kind of comes out the other, and it's just, the Lord isn't speaking to me. I'm not hearing his voice. What's going on? And I said to this child, I said, listen, I said, the Bible says that the Spirit of God is like the wind. Jesus said that. He said that the Spirit is like the wind. It blows where it blows. And you don't know where it's coming from or where it goes. And I said, for us to expect that every single time we open our Bible, that it's going to be this amazing experience where God is just revealing worlds of truth and we're seeing things we never saw before and He's talking into our lives and it's applying in every perfect way. I said, for us to think that that's going to happen every time we read the Bible is unrealistic. I said, it would be like going outside of the house and expecting that just because I'm outside that the wind is going to blow. Okay, I'm outside now, wind, blow. And wouldn't that be cool if that happened? You know, we could walk outside and we had power over the elements. But it doesn't work like that. The wind blows when the wind blows. And I said, the same thing happens to me. I read the Bible all the time, and and it seems like I'm getting nothing from it. Nothing's going in. It's not applying. It's not unfolding. I'm not seeing something. It's just I'm reading the Word. I said, that happens to me all the time. I said, but here's what I do. I said, I make sure that when the wind blows, there's plenty of dust to kick around. Because what happens oftentimes is that, no, I'm, I'm reading and I'm not getting or I'm not receiving or whatever. But when the Lord does show up in my life, and he does show up in my life as he does in yours, because he says that he will. And it happens in the unexpected moment, doesn't it? Sometime when you're just driving in your car and all of a sudden something happens and the Lord just begins to speak to you. In, in the craziest times, you're in Home Depot or wherever, and you're bending over looking at something, and all of a sudden the Lord just meets with you. There's something that happens. And all of a sudden, the things I've been reading, the messages I've been hearing, the studies I've been listening to, and the things even that I've been preaching, there's a whole string of things that will just kind of come together at the speed of thought, and a message will be conveyed. I'll begin to say, ah, Lord, this is what's going on right now. Or I'll begin to see, Lord, this is what you're doing, or what you did, or why this happened. And revelation begins to unfold. But it's when the Spirit blows as he listeth, and all of the things that I've been putting in, the dust, if you would, the Spirit blows, and it kicks it around, and it strings together, and it begins to make sense. And so I said to this child, I said, what I do is I make sure that even if I'm not getting something out of it, I continue to read. I continue to study. I continue to listen. I continue to attend because I know that God's got a purpose for it and he's going to use it. It's not for nothing. And he always does. He has a way of communicating with us. You say, well, that doesn't help me much. I still feel like I don't know how to hear God's voice. Just the other morning, I was reading in the Song of Solomon. And the reason I was reading in the Song of Solomon is because it's in the one-year Bible and it's where I'm at. You know, it's... <laughs> you know, you're like, why is he reading that? You know, 
But that's where I am. And, and, and the Lord struck me with this one little passage, and I want to share it with you. Just listen. It's just two verses. It's Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. And this is the bride who represents you and me. This is you and me talking to Jesus. And we say this. Tell me, O thou whom my soul loves, where you feed, where you make your flock to rest at noon, for why should I be as one that turns aside by the flocks of thy companions? Now the feeding of sheep in the Bible always speaks of the hearing of his word. He's a shepherd and he feeds us the bread of life. And so the prayer that this bride is asking of her husband, the bridegroom, is how do I hear your voice? How do I know where you feed? I want to hear you. I want to eat what you're giving. I don't want to turn aside and get my substance and my sustenance from someone else. How do I hear your voice? That's the question that the bride is asking, essentially. And I want you to listen to the response of the bridegroom. He says, verse 8, If you know not, O thou fairest among women. Isn't it great to think that that's the way the Lord looks at you and I? Perfected, beautified. He said, listen, if you don't know, if you don't know how to hear my voice, then here's what you do. Go your way forth by the footsteps of the flock. In other words, get around the rest of God's people, number one, and feed thy kids besides the shepherd's tents. Who are the shepherds? Well, that's the pastors, those whom he has called to feed his flock. In other words, if you want to get skillful at hearing God's voice, then get around God's people and get around the teaching of God's Word. Let the Word of God be infused into your life in a greater and greater and consistent measure and matter. And that way, when the Spirit blows, you'll be able to recognize what God is saying because He never speaks contrary to or independent of His Word. His Word is an essential part in hearing His voice. It's how we decode the Spirit's voice, and it's how we detect truth in light of error, or in spite of error, that comes. And so the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. God knows how to get the message across, and so Abraham has a vision, and the entirety of the chapter is the message that's conveyed. So what does God say to Abram in this vision? He says to him, first of all, he says, Fear not, Abram, for I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Now, we already know the source of Abram's fear, why he's afraid. But what's the solution to Abram's fear? The threat of these armies regrouping and now coming to wipe him out. God replies and he says to Abram, I am thy shield. Now, this is the first time that God refers to himself as the I am in the Bible. He doesn't say, I will be your shield if you ever need me to be in the future. He doesn't say, I can be your shield if you continue to walk rightly before me. He doesn't say, I was your shield in the battle that has already passed. He speaks of it in the continual present tense, and he says that I am your shield, the steady, constant protection over your life. It's interesting to me that when Moses was met by God a few hundred years later from this time, and God sent Moses to the children of Israel, Moses said, what's your name? Who should I tell them sent me? And God replies, and he says, tell them, my name is I am. Moses goes, what? What kind of name is I am? 
God says, that's my name. My name is I am. What's the implication? The implication is that I am whatever you need. And God is the one that can be whatever it is that his people need at any given time for whatever purpose. He can meet that need. He's the I am. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he said that to honor your father and mother, he said that's the first commandment with a promise attached to it. The promise is that you'll live long. You'll have a long life if you honor your father and mother. And Paul actually says that. He says it's the first commandment with a promise. Well, the Apostle Paul was actually wrong. Now, before you get angry and say, whoa, 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 are you contradicting Scripture? No, 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 I'm not contradicting Scripture. He was right, literally, because it's the only commandment that actually has a promise written attached to it. But the first commandment with a promise, at least implied, is the first commandment. The first commandment, God says this. He says, I am the Lord, your God, who led you out of Egypt from bondage in Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. And that commandment contains the greatest promise in all of the Bible, that you shall have no other gods. You say, well, wait, there's no promise in that commandment. That was just a declaration. It was an order that we're to have no other gods before him. What kind of a promise would be attached to that? Well, think about it for one moment. What is a god? A god is anything that you would trust in, hope in, worship, look to, obtain help from, for a need that you have in your life. A God is something that you lean on, something outside of yourself that you can't do for yourself. You're putting your trust in something. Now, if God says that we're not to have any other gods but Him, then what He's saying is that we're not to trust in, lean on, look to, or find our help in anything else other than Him. And if God commands that that's what we're to do, then it implies that he is able to meet the need, whatever it is. Well, God helps those that help themselves. Well, what if, what if you can't help yourself? Well, God doesn't worry about money. I have to worry about that. That's a worldly thing. No, no, you're leaning on yourself. God can do anything. He's the I am. We can trust him for all things. Abraham is thinking, how am I going to defend my puny little camp against the invading armies of Persia and Mesopotamia? God says, you don't have to worry about that. I am your shield. Oh, and Abraham, by the way, I'm not just your shield. I'm also your exceeding great reward. I saw what you did there in Sodom when you let go of all of the treasures and the spoils of war. You forsook and gave up great riches and wealth beyond what you could ever imagine. And I saw what you did, and Abram, I just want you to know that I'm not only the one who defends you, the one who will keep you, but I'm the one who enriches you. I am your reward, the thing that you're craving and the thing that you want the most. I love this word that God gives to Abram here when he says that I am your reward. Because what this represents for Abram is the first time that God introduces to him one of the most important lessons that every child of God must learn. And I say the first time because we all have to hear this many times because we don't get it. Is that the greatest treasure that you and I could ever have, the greatest bounty and blessing that could ever come into our lives, is God himself. 
we often think that the greatest thing we could get is something that we'll get from God. Well, God, if you give me the healing or the job or the spouse or the opportunity or the renewed mind or the spiritual gift, Lord, if you give me those things, that will be the riches. And God says, no, 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 you're not understanding. The blessing is not in obtaining the something. The blessing is in having me. I'm the blessing. We say, yeah, 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 Lord, I know. But, Lord, what I'm saying is I, I'm just waiting for you to open the door. And once you open this door for me that I've been knocking on for so long, and God says, no, 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 I am the door, Jesus said, right? I am the door. If by me anyone come in, he'll find pasture and he'll go out and come in. Yes, yes, Lord, I know, <laughs> I know. But what I'm saying is bread, Lord, bread, you know, bringing home the bread, Lord, I, there's a need here. There's something practical that I need. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread, the thing that you need. Yeah, yes, Lord, I know, I know, I know. I, Lord, I'm trying to be real with you here. We're talking in truth, okay? Let's be real. Jesus says, I am the truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Do you understand? So often we get into the mode of thinking that it's something that we'll obtain from God. But it's not something that we obtain from Him. It is Him. He's the one. The woman that Jesus met at the well in John chapter 4. She came at noontime because she was a prostitute. And she was ashamed. She didn't come when the other people came. She came because she was thirsty. She had a need and she brought her bucket. And she was going to let it down the well and she was going to fill her bucket and get her needs met for that day. And she had an encounter with Jesus Christ there at the well and they had a little discussion about worship and truth and Samaritans and Jews. And Jesus revealed himself to her. Not just his name, but his person and his position. He revealed to that woman that day his love and his messiahship and his acceptance of her. And he invited her into a relationship with herself. And the most remarkable part of that entire passage is that it says that that woman left her bucket by the well and she went back into the village and she said, come see a man that told me everything I ever did. She got it. It's not what I need put in my bucket today. It's not, Lord, please fill this. I'm unsatisfied. There's needs in my life. There's something I need you to do. That was irrelevant. It didn't matter anymore. Once she had him, she left the bucket by the well. The bucket doesn't matter anymore. Come see a man who told me here. Come see this man. And the whole village came. When will we learn the lesson? It's not what he gives. It's who he is. He's the treasure. I am your exceeding great reward, Abram. It's not what I give. It's who I am. You have me. I'm not only your shield, but I am your exceeding great reward. Well, does Abraham get it? Does he get the message? Notice what he says in verse 2. Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me? He's just like us, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, Lord, I know. But what will you give me seeing that I go childless in the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. He says to God, he says, Yes, Lord, I understand. You've given me great material wealth. And I appreciate it. And I know that you're the source of whatever else I might need or whatever I could want. 
said, but Lord, I'm not looking for prosperity right now. I'm looking for posterity. Lord, I don't have someone to leave all this to. Even these great promises that you've given to me, you've promised me a land, a future. You've told me some amazing things, but Lord, as of yet, I'm over 75 years old. My wife is getting older every day, and you've given me no seed, no son. I'm going to pass this on to Eliezer, the Syrian, who's the chief servant who's been born in my house. Lord, you know that's what's going to happen. Abram said, Behold, to me you've given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is my heir. And it says that, Behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. Now, I love the kindness of the Lord in this. He doesn't say, Abram, don't you get it? Didn't you hear what I just said to you? He doesn't do that. He says, Abram, you want a son? Well, I'm telling you, Abram, that you're going to have a son. The promises, the prosperity that I've given you, you're not going to leave it to the chief steward of your house, but someone that will come from your own body is going to be your son. In fact, Abram, come with me. I want to show you something, God says. And it says that he brought him forth abroad outside, and he said, look now toward heaven and tell the stars, that is, count the stars, if you're able to number them. And he said unto him, so shall thy seed be. Not only am I going to give you a son, Abram, but if you were to number the descendants that will come from your own body, you would have to be able to number the stars to be able to do it. Now, even today, with our most advanced telescopic technology, we cannot number the stars. We don't know how many there are. We can estimate, but we cannot number them. And that's the point of what God is saying to Abram. He's saying, Abram, you're not going to be able to number the descendants that are going to come from you. It will be a number that's too great and impossible to calculate and to count. The Bible says that he does exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. Abram asks, God answers. Listen, if you have a need from the Lord, you have questions, I counsel you this. Bring it to him in prayer. I'm amazed at how many people that I talk to that have issues, and I'll ask them eventually, I'll just say, well, have you prayed and asked God this specifically? And sometimes I get that look like, I never thought of that. Do it. Because God answers. He answered Abram, he'll answer you. But notice what happens next. It's one of the most amazing verses in all the Bible, verse 6. It says that he, that is Abram, believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. This is an amazing verse. God speaks and gives Abram a promise. He says, I'm going to give you descendants that outnumber the stars of the sky. It says that Abram heard the word that God said, he believed what God said to him, and the Lord said, in response to Abram's faith, believing, you know what, I'm going to impute to you, I'm going to grant to you righteousness, a right standing before me because of your faith, because you simply believed in me. This is an amazing thing. Three times in the New Testament, this verse right here is used by the Apostle Paul to make the case for salvation by faith in the Lord alone. This verse is the foundation of the entire book of Romans and the entire book of Galatians in the New Testament. The fact that when we believe what God said about Jesus Christ, 
that God imputes or reckons or lays to our account righteousness. God makes us righteous because we believe what he did for us in the person of Jesus Christ. It equates unto righteousness. The word righteousness that's used here in Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 is a word that means rightly clothed. To be righteous is to be rightly clothed. Remember in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned against God? They were naked, right? They realized that they were naked. And so what did they do? They sewed together fig leaves and they clothed themselves to cover their nakedness and their shame. They were wrongly clothed, right? God came in and he goes, what are those rags? What are those fig leaves that you've sewn around yourselves? What are, what's, what, why are you doing this? Who told you that you were naked? They were wrongly clothed. But what did God do? God took a lamb. He slayed the lamb. There was the shedding of blood, an innocent substitute. And God took the clothing, the wool of the lamb, and he rightly clothed them. It was clothing that was provided by God. They were robed by God. Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10 says it like this. God says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. God's the one that clothes us with righteousness. It's a righteousness that's given to us by him that doesn't come from ourselves. Now, anytime I seek to clothe myself and to somehow cover my own sinfulness and to present myself covered before God, that is a self-righteousness. Because I've produced that righteousness. That's clothing that I have placed on me. Well, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to make my promise and my pledge. I'm going to be better and good, God. I've clothed myself, and it's a wrong clothing. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6 says this, But we are all as an unclean thing. Very flattering, right? You came to church to hear that tonight? And all our righteousnesses, that is, all of our clothing, the things that we try to cover ourselves with, are as filthy rags. They're dirty clothes. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Filthy rags. But if I come to him and he clothes me, now I'm rightly clothed. And what we're told here is that Abram believed in the Lord, the promise that he gave, and God accounted it to him, clothed him in righteousness because of it. What does it mean to believe when it says that Abram believed in the Lord? The Hebrew word is the word amen, A-M-A-N. And it comes from the root word amen, A-M-E-N, which means so be it. It means that Abram heard what God said and he said, so be it. I believe it. I accept it. I reckon it to be true in my life. Amen. Okay, you said it, I believe it. That's what it means to believe. It's an amazing to me because to believe something is a choice that lies with you and me. We either choose to believe something or we choose not to believe it. It's our choice. It's up to us. But once I make the choice and I say, I believe it. God, I believe what you've said about Jesus. I believe in the salvation that that provides. 
The Bible says that God responds by imputing, reckoning, accounting to us a righteousness. We are rightly clothed before him. Listen to what Paul the Apostle says in Philippians chapter 3 concerning this righteousness. He says, But what things were gained to me in my former life, those things I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. In other words, Paul recognized that his most religious deeds could not bring him closer to God and could not make him righteous. And he says, I put all of those clothes aside and I put them to the dung pile. That's what they are. So that I might be clothed with the righteousness of God that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. You and I are either righteous or wicked before God tonight based upon what we believe concerning Jesus Christ. God gave him to be the satisfaction for his wrath and the payment for our sins. And he says that if we will put our trust in that sacrifice and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead for our sake, God will impute to us the robes of righteousness. And we're, we're his. We belong to him before his throne. And it's a choice that you and I have to make. Abram believed in the Lord and it was counted unto him for righteousness. An amazing truth, the foundation of which is found right here in Genesis 15. And then the Lord went on to say in verse 7, that I am the Lord that brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. Now, God says, not only am I going to give you righteousness, Abram, but your life is not an accident. There's a purpose for your life. I saved you and brought you out of Babylon and I brought you into this place because I'm going to give you this land. This is not an accident. And listen, church, your life is not an accident. God didn't save you out of the world so that you could wander aimlessly, ticking people off and thinking that you're just making a mess of things. He's in control of what's happening in your life right now and he's working it all towards a purpose. That's what God communicates to Abram here. Now I'm so comforted by Abram's response. Notice what he says in verse 8. And he said, Abram, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? Wait a minute, didn't it just say that he believed? And yet one breath later, he's doubting? Oh, this comforts me greatly. To know that even the man who is held up as the pillar of what faith represents stumbled in his faith. He didn't have a perfect faith. He still wanted some assurance. He wanted to know, God, how will I know that this is going to happen? Well, I would think at this point that God's patience is wearing thin, wouldn't you? Okay, Abram, we got to do it this way, huh? We're going to do one of these Moses, Aaron, Rod things. No, 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 no. God says, okay. Abram, you want proof? You want assurance? Let's do this. Verse 9. So he, the Lord, said unto him, Take for me a heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And so he took unto him all these, and he divided them. He cut them in the midst. He cut them in half. Yes, it was bloody. Yes, it was messy. And he laid each piece one against another, but the birds divided he not. So he takes these animals, he cuts them in half, 
And then he puts one half of each animal across from the other, and he creates a path that passes between the two halves of these newly divided, bloodied animals. And it says that when the fowls, the birds, came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. So what happens here is that Abraham asks the question. He says, God, how will I know that these things are going to happen? And what God does is God draws Abram into what was a common custom in his day. That is that he's going to enter into a blood covenant with Abram. God and Abram are going to enter into a covenant. Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 18. I want you to just listen to this so that you understand what's going on here. God says this through the prophet Jeremiah. He says that I will give the men that have transgressed my covenant, which have not performed the words of the covenant which they have made before me, when they cut the calf in twain and passed between the parts thereof. The princes of Judah and the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs and the priests, and all the people of the land, which passed between the parts of the calves. God talking about a future situation, something that happened later on, but defining for us what's going on here. God is doing what's called cutting covenant with Abram. It was a serious binding contract that they would keep in those days. There was actually four different types of contracts. There was the handshake, the smiting of the hands, they would call it. It was a simple, friendly word of mouth agreement. There was also the sandal covenant where they would exchange one sandal until the day that the deal was completed and then they would give the other the sandal back as a memorial. The third in intensity was the salt covenant where you would take a pinch of salt from someone else's salt bag and put it in yours and then they would take a pinch of salt from yours and put it in theirs and it was a covenant that said this covenant is a lasting covenant just as we can't separate these pieces of salt again from one of the other's bag. But the most binding and serious of the covenants was the blood covenant, where they would literally cut an animal in half, take each other by the hand, walk between the two halves of the animal, each declaring their side of the covenant. And what they were implying is that if I break my word, then may it happen to me as it happened to this animal. May my blood be shed if I were to break my side of the deal. Now, little does Abram know at this point that it will be through the shed blood of God that the covenant will be kept that God is making. But nevertheless, God says, let's cut covenant Abram. But then Abram waits. Nothing happens. The day waxes on. The birds of prey begin to smell blood in the air and they begin to descend upon the carcasses and Abram with all of his strength drives them away seeking to preserve the terms of the covenant himself. Seeking to maintain the status quo just long enough for God to show up and seal the deal. But eventually he wears out. He can no longer defend what he thinks he needs to defend. And he falls asleep and a horror of great darkness falls upon him. God debilitates him and keeps him from being able to do it himself. There's an amazing parallel here that I would bid you to think through on your own in, in future hours after this study and in the next couple of days. Abraham thinking that somehow he has to protect the promises of God. Somehow thinking that he has to be strong enough, just long enough to see God come through. 
I know I can relate to that in my own life, thinking that my strength had to hold on and maintain and wait and persevere until God did what I was waiting for him to do in my life. I'm so comforted by the fact that Abram failed to do it. He falls into a deep sleep and a horror of great darkness falls upon him. He's not able to defend and uphold on his own. He falls asleep. Amazing. God puts him out of commission. But then the word comes, and here's the message. It says, verse 13, And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that your seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. Again, now speaking of Egypt and the sojourn, the time that the children of Israel are in Egypt under Joseph and then up till Moses. And afterward, they will come out with great substance. And you shall go to your fathers in peace. Abram, you're going to live a long life. You're going to die an old man in peace. You'll be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. So now God gives insight into Abram, concerning what's going to happen to him and his descendants from this moment through the next 400 years. He says, Abram, here's what's going to happen when you and I finish this conversation today. You're going to go on and you're going to lead a good, fruitful, peaceful life and you're going to die of old age, an old man full of years. It's going to be good. You and me are going to walk together. But then after you... Your descendants are going to rise up and they're going to go down into Egypt where I will multiply them. They're going to be afflicted there. They're going to be slaves there for four generations. But after that, I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to bring them out of that land and they're going to come with great substance. They're going to be enriched because the Egyptians are going to give to them their substance. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? That you know, we, we say, yeah, of course, well, that's what happened. But this is all prophetic. It hadn't happened yet. And God is telling Abram what he's going to do. And then God gives Abram the reason why there's a delay. Why is there going to be 400 years before we begin to see these things really come to pass? Why the affliction? Why? God says, verse 16, because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. You say, well, who are the Amorites? The Amorites were a part of the Canaanite peoples that were living in the land that God was going to give to Abram. They were the citizens of the promised land when this word is being spoken to Abram, at least one of the groups that were there. You say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Wait. Is God saying here that his people, God's people, Abram's descendants, are going to have to suffer slavery and affliction because God is being patient with sinners? Is that really what's being said here? God's patience for a godless people that ultimately are going to fail because of God's patience for them? Abram's descendants have to be slaves and live under affliction for a long time? What gives? That doesn't make any sense, God. What are you talking about? Why would you do this? Oh, the wisdom of God. The Bible says that he works all things together for good, doesn't it? The Bible says that he's acquainted with his ways. The Bible says that no one is his counselor, that who has known the mind of the Lord? 
Who is first instructed to him and told him how he should do things? God knows exactly what he's doing. Why is God doing it this way? Why doesn't he just give Abraham the land now and move things forward? Slavery, affliction, oppression, patience with people that are ultimately going to fail and be judged? What is God doing? Well, first of all, what God is doing is he's letting his people in Egypt see firsthand what unrighteousness does to a nation. They're going to see from a distance what happens to the Amorite and Canaanite people that live in a godless manner, generation after generation. They're going to see firsthand the kind of life, the kind of people, the kind of kids, the kind of culture that's produced when God is not a part of the culture. They're going to get to see it, and they're going to need to know it. Because God's going to say to them when they come into the land, listen, if you do what they did, then it's going to happen to you as it happened to them. And they'll be fully aware of what God means by that. God's going to let them see what sin does. That's part of the reason why we suffer what we suffer while we wait for God to come through in our lives. He's letting us see what's going on around us so that we can learn and apply those lessons in our own life. Another thing that God is doing by letting them stay in Egypt under affliction and slavery is for 400 years, he's letting them feel what they don't want to be. We don't want to be citizens in an ungodly world. We don't want to be slaves in a nation that doesn't fear the Lord. We don't want to be that. And he's letting them feel it. One of my, well, my daughter, she works uh, for the LaGrange Library. And it's a very exciting job. <laughs> Not really. And I was talking with her. She's been doing it now for uh, quite a while, longer than I would have been able to. And I was commending her at her perseverance, that she doesn't quit, she doesn't complain, she doesn't leave, even though it is a very difficult job to keep interesting. And I was saying, you know, it's a very good thing that's happening in your life right now. Because what's happening is that you are learning very clearly something that you don't want to do for the rest of your life. And I said, that's an important lesson for every human being to know. We need to be in situations that are uncomfortable. And in those situations, learn, hey, I don't want to be here for the rest of my life. That's important. God uses that experience to lead us to where we ultimately will be. There's many more things in this life that are more important than money or the reward of a job. Many more. Many. Boy, language is falling apart. Time to land the plane and close the study, right? Say amen. God lets us feel what we don't want to be through the affliction of our patience waiting for him to come through in our life. And God does that for his people. The third thing that God is doing is that God is justifying his judgment. God is going to judge the Canaanites. You know, a lot of unbelievers and skeptics have a problem with this passage because God ultimately does judge the Canaanites and he tells his people to wipe them out completely. How could a loving God tell his people to go in and wipe out an entire nation, including the women and children and the animals? What kind of a loving God would make that kind of a demand upon his people? You know what kind of God? A merciful and patient God who waited until the last possible moment for a society to repent before that society became so rabid 
and so insipid and so poisonous that should they exist any longer, the only thing that they would be good for would be to infect other people with their sinfulness. I'm going to wait 400 years because their iniquity is not yet full. I'm going to wait the longest I can... Yeah, I know, ultimately, they're not going to repent. But I'm going to wait anyways and give them the longest possible moment. God's judgment is always just and it is always shrouded in mercy. 400 years he gave them. If there was a rabid dog on a playground where your kids were playing and you killed that dog, the question wouldn't be, well, how long would that dog had lived had you not shortened its lifespan? The question is, how many kids would that dog have infected before you killed it? That's the proper question. And God brought the Canaanite peoples to the place where it wasn't a question of how long they would last before their sin did them in, but it was a question of who else would be infected by that sin if they're not done in. And thus God says, until that iniquity is fulfilled, I'm going to wait. Well, God goes on, or the, the story goes on now, and it says this in verse 17. It says that it came to pass that when the sun went down, and it was dark. Behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp passed between those pieces. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Abram wakes up from this vision that God had given to him and he sees that all of the pieces are now burned up. The pieces are gone. What does this mean? It means that God didn't clasp hands with Abram and walk through the pieces together. God put Abram to sleep and God walked through the pieces himself. A lot of people say, I'm going to meet God halfway. I'll make my promise and my declaration. I'll keep my side of the deal and hopefully he'll keep his. God says, no, -uh, don't work that way. He says, I don't want promise makers. I want promise takers. I make the covenant. I'll pass through the pieces by myself. I don't need your help in bringing these things to pass. I'm going to do this. The New Testament tells us that after God did this, Abram was settled. Remember before? God, how will I know that you're going to do this for me? God cuts covenant with Abraham, passes through the pieces himself, in Hebrews chapter 6 tells us that an oath for confirmation is an end of all strife. Meaning Abraham saw this, he woke up, he got the message. God, you're going to do it. You said it, I believe it, you're going to do it. As fantastic, as unbelievable as it is, Lord, you're going to do it. How does this apply to you and me as we close out our study tonight? 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ brought us into a similar covenant with himself. He sat at the table with the 12 apostles. He broke bread before them. He said, this is my broken body, which is broken for you. He took the cup after supper and he said, this is the new covenant in my shed blood. It's shed for you. And he gave it to them and he said, you drink of this. 
And Jesus Christ entered into a blood covenant with those 12 and with all that would come after them all the way to the present day to you and I sitting here. A covenant by blood made by Christ for you and me. You say, what was the covenant that God made with us? It's recorded for us in Jeremiah chapter 31. I want you to listen to it. It's only two verses. It's a short covenant, but listen to what it says. It says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's the covenant that Jesus was talking about at the Last Supper when he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. There's four I wills and a promise. I will make this covenant. I will put my laws in their hearts. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. I want you to write those things down sometime in the next couple of days and think each one of them through. I will remember your sin no more. God, is it possible for you to not remember something? God says, I will remember your sin no more. But God, what about the sin I committed this morning? I will remember. What are you talking about? What's the promise? The promise is that you will know Him. That you'll come into a relationship with Him. You know what the amazing thing is about this covenant that Jesus Christ makes with you and I? It's His covenant. It's a blood covenant. And He did it by Himself. It's amazing to me the parallel between what Abraham experienced and what Jesus Christ went through in His death upon the cross. After giving that cup to his disciples and declaring the covenant in his blood, he went into a garden. And a deep sleep fell upon his disciples, remember? Can you not watch with me for one hour? Jesus said to them. And they couldn't stay awake. Just like Abram, a deep sleep fell upon him. He couldn't stay awake. He wasn't strong enough. And a horror of great darkness fell upon Abram. A horror of great darkness fell upon Jesus Christ. His soul became exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. He began to sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. As the separation between him and the Father began, as the wrath of God for sin was being poured out upon him. And Jesus, not only was he divided upon the cross, his hands spread out, his blood shed, but in so doing, God passed through the pieces himself. God says, I will save you. I have redeemed you. I have forgiven your sins. I will remember them no more. And it has nothing to do with what you and I can bring to the table. Our best efforts to reform ourselves. It's simply a matter of do we believe it or not? Do we receive it? Or not. 
You say, well, this is a great testimony concerning the man Abraham, but I ain't no Abraham. Listen, this story is not about Abraham. This isn't history. This isn't testimony. This is you. You are Abraham in this story tonight. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, that we have been redeemed from the curse of the law through the blood of Jesus Christ. That the blessing of Abraham can come upon the Gentiles through faith in Jesus Christ. That when we place our faith in him, we become Abraham in this story. Listen, Abraham was not Abraham at this time in his life. Do you understand that? At this point in his life, he is staggering at the promises of God. He's depressed and afraid. He's up one minute and down the next. Sounds a lot like me, doesn't it? A lot like you. And yet God came to him and he declared to him this faithful promise. He sealed it with an oath. Your salvation has been purchased by Jesus. He's declared it with an oath. And he'll finish it to the end. Do you know how much God loves you? His word to you tonight is, fear not. I am your shield. I'm your exceeding great reward. I'm going to do in your life above and beyond anything that you could ask or think. It's done. It's sealed. It's for you. I'm willing to prove it to you in covenant, cutting covenant for you. I'm going to finish the work that I began. He's so good. He's so faithful. He loves us so incredibly much. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for these things that are spoken and shown, that are revealed. We thank you for your ways. Thank you for the mysterious things that you do, the way that you communicate, the promises that are ours. We thank you, God, for these incredible truths. So comforting, Lord. To know that your promise is sure. Help us, Lord, to appropriate these things. Help us to believe and grab a hold, to apprehend. Help us to walk in the truth of it. And may the power of your Holy Spirit make Jesus Christ known to us in greater and greater measure. And that we might be conformed into the same image from glory to glory as we set our eyes upon you. So help us tonight, Lord. We're thankful for all of these things. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.